today on Ag News Daily. Production agriculturalists are really good at production agriculture. They are not really good at sitting down and laying these things out and talking about them and communicating them. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is Friday, July 22nd, 2018. I'm Mike Pearson, joined by Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? Not too bad, Mike. How about you? Fantastic. And, of course, we are joined as well by Hannah Pagel. And, Hannah, how are you? I'm doing great, Mike. And it is Friday, so I'm very excited. <laughs> Wonderful. We love to hear that excitement in the voice of young people. I think that speaks well <laughs> for the future of the country. Oh, gosh, it's good to be back. I had a fun time yesterday at the uh, Women's Landowner Conference over in Brooklyn, and I've got an interview that we will play later with Steve Bohr talking about farm transitions. And even though it's kind of a dull topic, uh, he makes it kind of fun and uh, give us something to think about over the weekend. But what did I miss yesterday? Let's see. Well, we were uh, debating or discussing whether or not the Senate and the House would make any moves on the farm bill, and it does look like they have done so. The House did pass the uh, the farm bill, their version of the farm bill yesterday in a vote with only by only two, basically. It was 213 to 211. So now we're waiting still for the Senate to pass their version, which rumored that they're going to pass it next week. And then, of course, we have to go into that period where they try to make the two kind of mesh together. Yeah. And it looks like from my reading that the House went ahead with their uh, work requirements on mm-hmm. the SNAP program. That's the big change there. And the Senate had none of those, basically just a re-up of the farm bill we had from 2014. So my guess is a reconciled bill is probably going to have some work requirements built into it, just not as much as the House bill. Delaney, are you hearing anything different? Yeah, No, I would say we're probably going to have some sort of work requirements because that's uh, President Trump's, I guess, main problem with the Senate version is that the work requirements weren't tough enough or strong enough. And I think he can veto it if he doesn't like what they come up with. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the power of the presidential pen. So, hmm, a lot of bridges yet to cross in getting a farm bill across the finish line by, uh, what, September 30th or October 30th? What's the end date? Um, I think it's September 30th. All right. Well, and I I was talking Quick question. Yeah. I don't I don't want it to be a dumb question, but I'm just curious. So once the House has just passed their bill, the Senate's going to vote on it. And then if the Senate passes it, they're going to try meshing them together. Will there like does they, they form a committee to do that or how do they yes, get? Both? I think they form a committee to do it. Uh huh. OK. Thank yep. And clarifying. so they'll get. They'll get some folks from the House and some from the Senate, and they'll go and they'll they'll just kind of sit in the room and say, all right, this is what we need to pass it in the House. We need to have a work requirement. The Senate goes, well, you know, none of our Democrats are going to vote for a work requirement, so let's let's find some place we can compromise, and they'll horse trade for a while, and then eventually they'll come out with the same bill. They'll take it to both chambers, and they'll re-vote uh, on that. re-vote yep. again. And, you know, it's another place where these things can fail before it gets to the president for a signature yeah. or not. Okay. It's a long process. Yeah, like volleyball. It just keeps going back and forth. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Perfect. Uh-huh. Yeah, except volleyball is interesting. Politics is not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it, it does get interesting from time to time. And, in fact, we had some more interesting tweeting this last night from President Trump. If you guys, uh, let's see, you guys both drive American vehicles, right? Yeah, Ford. Mm-hmm. 
Yep, yep. Okay, and I've got a Chevy, so American as well. But uh, for our listeners who are driving fancy Mercedes-Benzes or BMWs or Volkswagens or Aston Martins or uh, Volvos or any of those other things, President Trump has threatened to put a 20% tariff on imports of European Union-assembled cars. Oh, so I guess Aston Martins would be exempt because Britain is out of the EU now. But um, this was kind of perceived as jumping the gun because his uh, Department of Commerce is looking into whether or not foreign cars are a threat to American national security. And they haven't come out with a decision yet, but Trump is already tweeting that, yeah, yeah, we're going to do a 20% tariff. So expect more trade disputes and back and forth to come ahead here in the next, oh gosh, I suppose at least three years, three and a half years. Well, that's quite the timing because today is when the EU's imposed tariffs goes into effect again. Oh, on the what? Three something billion dollars worth of American stuff? Yep. Three point three mil or billion dollars worth of U.S. products. And a lot of them are agricultural products, steel and manufactured goods. And bourbon, if I remember correctly. Orange juice, I can't remember what else. Cheeses, I think. Harley Davidson, motorcycle. Yes, Harley's, right. So if you're you're buying a hog over in uh, Switzerland or Germany, it just got a little more expensive today. Yeah, for sure. And I don't mean a sow, I mean something with straight pipes. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Motorcycle. (laughs) Oh, Mike. Well, I have an interesting uh, article that I wanted to touch on. So have you guys like seen where they're thinking about shifting some of the programs that the USDA oversees into other agencies? Yes. Yeah. Just a conversation about that yesterday. What do you got for us, Anna? Okay, so the the plan was announced yesterday by the Trump administration that would shift certain programs from the USDA to other government agencies and so it, it was like a 132-page document that was sent out detailing what shifts would be made. So some of the big ones are, uh, let's see, the Department of Health and Human Services will get the nutrition program, uh, a shift from the, house, the USDA, housing, USDA housing program would then be shifted over to the Department of Housing and Urban, De- Urban Development. And then they're also looking at consolidating the government's food safety oversight into a new federal food safety agency. And then, Mike, this goes back to what we talked about, I think, on Wednesday how yeah. the USDA oversees open-faced sandwiches and the FDA <laughs> closed-faced sandwiches. So I found an interesting quote from, let's see, it was from Budget Director Mick, Mick Mulvaney. Sorry, words are very hard today for me. It's a Friday. <laughs> uh, but a, an interesting quote that kind of just really summed up everything that we were thinking with that discussion earlier this week And it's about why he thinks the government should merge into a new federal food safety. And the quote is, if you have a chicken, it's governed by the USDA. If that chicken lays an egg, it's now governed by the FDA. But if you break the egg and make it into an omelet, that is now covered again by the USDA. So it kind of shows that pattern Mm. of this goes here, this goes there, and why it's almost essentially needed to kind of merge the two together. Interesting. Mm, that doesn't make sense. 
Yeah, so I was talking yesterday with Amanda DeYoung, who is the head of oh, yeah. Iowa's FSA, and uh, we were talking about the shakeup that per- Secretary Purdue has put in place with the FSA, merging NRCS, so it's kind of under one umbrella. And then she said that's going to happen regardless. This is something that was put into place during Obama, and it just makes sense. Purdue's really going to run with this football. And then she mentioned this, kind of the the re the bigger rearrangement of federal agencies. And she said this issue all kind of, it doesn't all hinge on, but it's certainly part of it hinges on congressional approval. So we're probably going to be talking about this post the November election. And then because it's such a big deal and the government moves so slowly, this could take up until the next presidential election in 2020. And it might be a might be a significant issue in either President Trump's re-election or any of his challengers' campaigns. Yeah, like a platform issue. Right, yeah, exactly. So it's definitely something to watch. Big announcement and, uh, I don't know, could change the way things work in D.C.? Maybe it'll make it more efficient? I don't know. Well, speaking of big announcements, we were supposed to get an RFS announcement today. Uh, they were having a, a planned ceremony EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt and Secretary Purdue were, in, were supposed to announce the 2019 renewable volume obligations at a, I guess, a meeting or a rally or whatever you want to call it in Missouri today. But apparently sources say that the event was canceled. So now the announcement was on hold, but we were speculating that they were going to make a request to the large oil refineries to make up for those uh, hardship waiver exemptions that some of the smaller refineries were granted. So... Yes, and uh, kind of rolling those back into the system, which we yep. talked about earlier this week. And Jarrett Renshaw, who is a reporter for Reuters, has some contacts inside the EPA, and he says the EPA is proposing uh, 19.88 billion gallon for the biofuels RVOs, the renewable volume obligations for this upcoming year. So they'd raise it about 3% over uh, 2018. And this isn't the proposal. This is according to two sources within the EPA. They're going to hold corn-based ethanol the same at 15 billion gallons, and they're going to raise the advanced biofuels, whether it's corn stover or whatever, all those different kinds, up to 4.88 billion gallons. So now we just need the EPA to come out and either confirm or deny that uh, that is the plan, that 19.88 billion gallon blending mandate. Yep, but we don't know when that's going to happen. It looks like it's on hold for now. Yep, yep, certainly sounds that way. Well, let's see. Hannah, do you have any other news for us here? Uh, Yeah, my last piece of news for you guys today. So last week I touched a little bit on how researchers were using algae to treat mastitis. Well, in that article it stated that there was no uh, cure exactly as of right now, or I shouldn't say cure, but there was no way to identify if a cow had mastitis or not. Well, the... There's a research team at Oregon State University, which ha- they have developed a blood test to identify cows that are susceptible to the bovine clinical mastitis. And so how it all, it started with a study cohort with 161 healthy pregnant Holstein cows from a 1,000 head of dairy, dairy herd. And then they took blood samples. Um, they were co- collected weekly during the last three weeks before calving and then again at calving time. But then after calving, the researchers selected blood samples of eight cows that were diagnosed with mastitis. And then they also compared it with nine cows that remained healthy after calving. And then they were able to identify when exactly those, those eight cows 
got the mastitis. And so this is pretty big because now we can actually identify what it opens up the door to identify what caused the mastitis when it when those cattle became susceptible to it. So that's pretty cool news in the world of research and science. Yeah, especially since that has such a huge impact on the dairy industry and the beef cattle industry. More research is mm-hmm. always a good thing. That is for sure. Well, let's see, Delaney, do you have any other news for us today while we uh, talk ag stuff on a Friday? <laughs> I don't have any other news, Mike, so why don't we hop into the markets? I will in just a second. I've got one other piece of news that just crossed the transom here, and this is, again, trade-related. It is the WTO. This is kind of a follow-up to the uh, potential tariffs on European autos. The U.S. and our uh, guy who goes over there to the World Trade Organization has said that any rulings that the World Trade Organization makes about tariffs or trade or anything could be vetoed if the WTO takes longer than 90 days. And so this is kind of the U.S.'s way to dodge all of these other countries throwing World Trade Organization challenges at uh, some of our new tariffs. Very interesting. Don't quite know what it all means, but I will continue digging into it and probably have more info come Monday. But let's see where the markets ended up for the week, shall we? Let's do it. All right, folks, and our markets are brought to us by our good friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, markets are always moving. It helps to have a plan to stay in front of them. Give our friends a call. You can reach the Zaner Group at 312-277-0050, or you can visit them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com, and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. Well, we've got mixed trade in the grain markets today. In corn, the July contract was up a quarter of a cent at 357 and a quarter. September was unchanged on the day at 366 and a half. Solid rebound today in soybeans. The July contract was up 14 cents to finish at 894 and a half. November new crop up 14 and three quarters to close the day at 916 and a quarter. Chicago wheat down a bit. The July contract off four cents on the day at 491 and a quarter. September down two and a half to finish at 504 and a quarter. Looking over on the livestock side, in live cattle, we've got some downtrade today. The June contract was down 37.5 cents at 108.2750. August was down 22.5 to close at 105.90. Feeder cattle saw some strength. The August contract was up 72.5 cents at 149.20, while September was up 57.50 to close at 149.82 and a half. And in lean hogs, the July contract down 65 cents at 79.82.50, while August was down 35 cents to close at 75.37.50. Quick look over at the dairy industry. Our class three milk for June was off a penny on the day at 15.25, while July finished down 16 cents to close the week at 14.70. Before we hear from Steve Bohr, let's get a word from our friends at Latham High Tech Seeds. Joining us this week is Phil Long, the agronomy specialist up at Latham High Tech Seeds. And Phil, we've heard from growers that Japanese beetles are starting to make their appearance known. Boy, what should they be thinking of this time of year? Yeah, Mike, I mean, the the Japanese beetles seem like they're coming out about the same time as the June beetles this year. I mean, it's just... Uh, they're a little ahead of schedule. Uh, I know reports all across the state, especially here in the northern part. Uh, if you look at the calendar and kind of what we've seen the past 30 years, we're about two to 300 uh, growing degree units above average, which <laughs> makes sense with all the hot temperatures we've had. So it kind of pushed those Japanese beetles out of the ground a little faster than normal. And 
Um, you know, you, gotta, you just got to remember the important parts. Usually their, their, their defoliation is not as big of a deal. It's usually the silk clipping and corn, which we're not there yet. But we've got a lot of small beans, especially in the northern part of the state. And I've seen a lot of setback by herbicides or other things. So they're, they're just not as good a health as, as normal. So uh, just pay attention to those types of fields because Japanese beetles can really uh, go to town pretty quick on, on small plants, you know. And your threshold is usually around 30% defoliation, uh, especially before bloom. And after bloom, it's more like 20, 20% defoliation when, when you should spray. So uh, just keep those things in mind as, as you're looking at those small beans that are trying to play catch up. Perfect. And, folks, if you want to work with a company as quality as Latham High Tech Seeds, you can give them a shout at 1-877-GO-LATHAM or visit their website at LathamSeeds.com. Well, folks, on this Friday here, we're talking to Steve Bohr. Steve is the president of Farm Financial Strategies. He's a farmer down in southeast Iowa, farms with family, and he works with folks really across the Corn Belt to help put strategies together to get the farm to the next generation. Steve, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. You bet, Mike. I appreciate it. Now, the reason I'm, I'm calling you up today is because yesterday you were a presenter at the Women's Landowner Conference over in Brooklyn, Iowa, and you talked quite a bit about having the conversation, getting the ball rolling on what things might look like for the next generation. So I want to kick it off. Steve, we're coming into the weekend. A lot of folks are finally starting to settle down from getting corn and beans in the ground, and it's as good a time as any to start having those family discussions What's step one if we've never talked to our the parent generation about a, a transition? Ironically, you tab it as step one. Um, probably 25 years ago, we created a process, and the first step we called step one. Hmm. Uh, and it was sitting down and trying to outline what issues and concerns are uh, and trying to figure out where you want to be. Production agriculturalists are really good at production agriculture. They are not really good at sitting down and laying these things out and talking about them and communicating them, and that's where they need some help. And that help comes from various different places, and sometimes that never that help never comes, and sometimes never communicating and talking about it. And, of course, those are some of the stuff that we sometimes hear about. Yeah, the the never communicating. I seem to hear a lot about that. Families that, uh, you know, eventually mom and dad pass away and the kids are going to the attorney's office going, well, I guess we'll find out what happens with the farm. And, you know, that seems like a pretty low-stress way to do it. If I'm mom and dad, why would I want to do it any different? Yeah, well, that's that's the deal. You know, we talk about leadership a lot in agriculture and I, I believe that that generation has an important job of leadership or one more important job of leadership, and that is to talk to the kids about what that last step is, if you will, and what they want in their transition. A lot of times they don't know how to do it, but they might have an idea of kind of what they want, and then with a little guidance and some help and some ideas and some suggestions, some suggestions they can pretty much formulate what they want to do, and then we have to communicate it. And that's kind of an important step. Absolutely. We all know older farmers, older landowners, and they tend to not be pretty shy about, you know, what their thoughts are as they look at the world around them. It's weird that the farm transition period is one of those areas where there isn't a whole lot of conversation. Yeah, you're right. And to be honest with you, it's 
really one of the most important things we can do. Our, our land is probably our most important resource. And, of course, we're in a what I call a perfect storm right now with a lot of different ingredients all coming together, most notably our land prices and, and the, the high high nature of those land prices and the values. And you add all that stuff up and you put a dollar sign in front of it to maybe some non-farming children who don't understand the plight that we might go through and how that $10,000 acre or whatever the number is will not cash flow. And all of a sudden, we've got some ingredients of a perfect but go the wrong way on somebody if they're not on top of it. Well, that's the thing. And you mentioned the perfect storm yesterday at the conference. Could you outline what are the factors? You mentioned the uh, high land values. What else is coming together to create this perfect storm for uh, farm transitions? Yep. First off is the age of the landowner. 60% of all the land in Iowa is owned by people that are 65 years and older. And because we love our land or because of capital gains and we don't have or lack of ideas or just, you know, bullheadedness, we're going to hold on to the land until we die. And that death is coming for a, a higher number of people just, uh, you know, from a demographic standpoint. So the age of the landowner... Then we've got, the, the, of course, the high, all-time high land values. Even though we've set back a couple of uh, couple of years, we're still at you know prices that will not uh, cash flow uh, and require subsidization from outside sources. Um, interest rates have been our friend the last couple of years, but that's going to be a changing uh, changing environment. We also sometimes have a lack of information and a lack of communication. Uh, and, and then you've got some other things like fair versus equal and you know, how do we divide this estate once we, we divide it? And then, of course, control. I want to control it. I don't want to give up control. Uh, and then the biggest one, I think, sometimes is deferral mentality. You know, whether it's grain marketing or estate planning, we are an industry of deferrers. And deferring these decisions until maybe it's too late or until somebody dies can really get you into trouble. So when you add all those ingredients up, uh, we've, we've got a potential volatile situation. You hit on something that I've heard a couple different times, and I'm hoping you can go into some more detail. Fair versus equal when we're looking at transitioning to the next generation. What, what's the distinction in your mind? Yeah, uh, you know, the industry has picked up on this, and so everybody's heard fair and equal, and everybody has a different idea of what fair is. And to be honest with you, some people have a different idea of what equal is. Uh, and so the, the most important thing is that each individual family gets a grasp on the two polarized opposites of maybe what their idea of equal is and then what maybe some of their other kids' ideas of equal is. And then there's somewhere in the middle. And that middle range, wherever that lies, to me, that's what fair is. And it's different for everybody. I've had families that believe that fair is giving their land to the one who is owning it or who is farming it. And who should own it? And then I've had the other extreme of saying the land should be divided equally amongst all of their children and let's appraise it at full price or let's auction it and let's figure out what it's worth. And if somebody can afford to buy it, they can afford to buy it. And, of course, those are extremes. But the reality of it is most people fall in the middle. And the challenge is figuring out where that middle ground is and what their family number is maybe today and what it might look like in the future and how that is going to evolve, and then will that cash flow? And if it won't cash flow, then they're going to have to decide, do we really want to keep this land in the family? And if the answer is no, well, then we're okay. Do what you want to do.
But if the goal is to keep the land in the family and that number won't cash flow, we got to figure out how to put a square peg into a round hole. And give us some examples. What have you done or what have you seen families do when they're, you know, they want to keep the far- the farm in the family? There is a one farming heir and several off-farm heirs. What what are some of the strategies you've utilized in your your <coughs> practice to help put that square peg in the round hole? That, you know, that that uh timeline or that line of possible strategies is immense and I don't know if we have enough time on your <laughs> podcast for that, but the reality of it is, you know, on one extreme, and a simple way of doing it is to give options to rent the ground if it's not sold or, it, you know, if the family members are okay renting it uh, at, and use some factor of Iowa State Extension average rent so that way that, you know, it's, it's black and white and they don't have to argue back and forth of what rent price should be. Uh, and then have some sort of an option to purchase if the family wants to sell they should first offer back to the other families in, in most people's mind and have some method of valuing the land, whether it's the average of two appraisals or a discount off the average of two appraisals or a method over the years that I've liked to use a lot of times and a lot of families like is to use special use valuation. And we talked briefly about this yesterday. That is a mathematical formula. It's five years average income off the land, usually derived in the form of what, what cash rent would be for that type of ground divided by interest rate, and that mathematical formula is a cash flow formula that Uncle Sam has allowed us to use under Section 2032A of the Internal Revenue Code. It's called special use. And the reality of it is maybe land that would appraise at nine or $10,000 an acre would come in at special use at 5000 or $5,500 an acre. And those of us in production agriculture would realize, yeah, that's a cash flow number that I got a chance at making that work. And that's that's an example of using um, special use to to price the land. Then we'll maybe use contract terms. Maybe we've got to go out a 30-year contract, and we hope that the farming child can pay it off in 10 and 15. But throughout it is, we want to make sure that it's affordable, and those are some of the strategies you can do. We've seen the other end of the extreme of saying, well, we'll come up with this price, and maybe the son has some insurance. Maybe the son or daughter, I, sh- I shouldn't say son, maybe the son or daughter has savings. Um, and if not, then we can always fall back on that contract. Uh, yet other families want to get the ball rolling now. And another ingredient in that perfect storm that I neglected was uh, the age of the landowner. If we wait until mom and dad pass away and one of them lives to age 90, as a farming child, I might be age 65 or 70 by the time I have an opportunity to buy the farm. And kind of a lost art is a contract sale. Maybe we should be considering selling and pricing some of these land acres to the next generation on a contract now while you're living. People freak out about that because of the dreaded capital gains. But right. The fact of the matter is, if, if you manage those capital gains on a long-term contract, most of my clients who look at that can get that capital gains rate down to 0% federal and it's 0% state. So actually the comment was made yesterday by one of the CPAs in the audience that capital gains are actually a farmer's friend and that is very true if you can if you can set up the contract properly and manage it properly. Interesting. And you mentioned something there mom's going to live to mom or dad of course going to live to to 85 90 95 when we get up into that age range you know we've got to take long-term care into consideration. And, you know, for me, dad's passed away, mom's got the farm. Boy, that makes me really nervous, the idea that all of the equity could eventually be gone, 
supporting care in a nursing home. Are there any yep. strategies? I mean, I hear this comment all the time, and it's it's definitely something that jumps out at you. What can, A, is that something growers and, and heirs need to be worried about? And, B, what can slash should we be doing in our transition planning for that uh, potential eventuality? Well, the, I think definitely nursing home and medical expenses long term is something that we have to understand because it's a, it's a factor in the risk puzzle. Um, production agriculturalists have to understand risk. And we do a very good job of the risks that we work with daily and maybe understand. But the, uh, some of the hidden risks that we've just touched on, whether it's estate tax or transition planning, or in this case, medical expenses, nursing home, is a risk that can devastate an operation or at least draw cash flow down in a time when we can't afford to have cash flow drawn out. And, you know, we mentioned that contract as an example. A very nice lady came up to me afterwards yesterday at the workshop, and she said, I bought our farm, my my nephew and I bought one of our farms from my mother, you know, 10 years ago, and she said, can the nursing home take that farm? And I said, well, the the balance of the contract is an asset of your mother's. And that, that asset, no different than a CD or a savings account or a farm, the nursing home, you know, is can can take. But the value of the farm 10 years ago or the value of the farm today is now protected. And so if had that have happened inside of five years, there's a five-year look back. The nursing home can look back on the last five years and say, was there a discount given on the sale? And then they can even come back on that. But once that five-year clock has is, is gone, gone past, that, that land is protected. And so that's yet another argument to get the ball rolling and consider a contract transfer, you know, where mom and dad can keep income and, and, and have a, a living, but yet the growth and the value has been moved on to the next generation. And in a lot of cases, the security of that land has been moved on to the next generation. Yeah, and it so that, sounds that's like one worst popular case, way. the farm itself is still going to stay in the family, even if any subsequent contract payments are going to be end up made to nursing home or, or medical services. That is correct. Um, I usually tell the example, but I run out of time yesterday, uh, of a gentleman who I, I've come to uh, really admire over the years. and He had for four years straight asked his advisors – to transition the land and basically sell on a contract to his sons. And he was told time and time and again that he couldn't afford to do it because the sons couldn't afford to buy it, and he couldn't afford the capital gains. Well, the long story short, our government allows us to sell things at a discount up to the current federal estate tax death exemption. You basically can use up your death exemption early in the form of a reduced sales price. Right now, that death exemption is $11,180,000. So in theory, that opens up the floodgates to value the land at any price you want to. And once I told this gentleman that, he wound up selling the land on a contract at $3,000 an acre. And the payments were about $250 an acre, which was an affordable price for his sons. And his capital gains each year were about $60,000 a year. When he added that capital gain to his ordinary income as a married couple, as long as he was under taxable income of $77,000, the federal capital gains rate is 0%. And if he's owned the farm for 10 years and was an active participated in it, uh, in that farm, the, the Iowa tax rate is 0% as well. 
here's an 85-year-old man that once we explain to him this is what he could do, he starts to cry. And, you know, the, the emotion of that and the understanding of that, he accomplished everything he wanted to, protected the farm, made it affordable for his two, two children, his two sons. And in his mind, $3,000 an acre was a fair price. And the reality of it is he, he inherited it. And so, you know, that, that was important for him and figuring out his goals and, and what he wanted to accomplish. And I just can't say enough about, you know, the possibility of a contract. It doesn't work for everybody, but it is a lost art because most of those 60, 70, 80-year-old farmers that we deal with, they had an opportunity to purchase land on a contract when they were younger. And my generation and younger, it doesn't seem like they have that same opportunity. And I'm not saying it's because of greed, but, you know, we hear catchphrases like stepped-up basis and, you know, $9,000 an acre and hold on to it until you die. And then all of a sudden things happen like auctions and arguments and fights. And, you know, contracts aren't used as much as they used to be. And I, I think that's something that in, in agriculture, especially in the Midwest, we need to at least take a look at. You bet. It can be a, a very valuable part of that puzzle when you're putting all of this together. Now, Steve, obviously we could talk all day. You are a font of information on this topic. If folks want to get a hold of you there at Farm Financial Strategies, how should they do it if they want to begin this process maybe earlier than they'd already been planning? Well, the telephone is also a lost art. Uh, you know, so many people communicate via text and email and, you know, social media. We've got all that. Uh, but the easiest one is our, our phone number is 800-375-4180. And, of course, our website is uh, www.farmestate.com. And then email, you can, you can get a hold of any of us with our last name and then the uh, at farmestate.com. Perfect. Steve Bohr, Farm Financial Strategies, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today and give us some thoughts here as we head into the weekend. I appreciate it, Mike. Thank you. All right. Well, you know, it's interesting. Farm transition planning, it's not a fun topic. Nobody likes talking about death, but... The more work you do ahead of time, you know, perhaps some headaches and maybe some arguments you're saving a little bit later on. For sure. Yeah. It's not a fun topic, but hopefully Steve did a little bit better job of making it a more interesting topic on today's Friday episode. Absolutely. And at least it's something to think about as we head into a weekend and maybe see our families. But we will be back next week. And if folks want to follow along or catch up on any episodes they may have missed. Hannah, where can they find Ag News Daily? Folks, you can go to our website at www.agnewsdaily.com. You can also find us on social media, Facebook and Twitter. And we are always looking for some more likes and some more you know, comments. So leave a comment behind it. We also on our website, we also have a great comments page that goes right to our drop boxes like Delaney said yesterday so leave us a comment we'd love to hear from you absolutely folks and with that Delaney what do you say should we let the people go let's let them go Mike 